Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. We're getting back into full swing here in Brussels and hope you've enjoyed the summer episodes over the last few weeks. First of all, a big thank you to all of you. While some podcast platforms don't give a great amount of detail about listener numbers, I'm pleased to say that as of last week, you're listening to the number one news and politics podcast made in Belgium, according to iTunes. So please rate us or review us on the platform you found this podcast, and that will increase our visibility on the platform and help us grow even more. This week, the EU bubble has been increasingly worried about Brexit. There's been heated accusations that each side isn't serious about the other or flexible enough in their approach. We've started to see real arguments and deconstruction of each side's position. Next week, we're going to see more and more attention turned to the German elections and also what Jean-Claude Juncker plans to put into his State of the Union speech on September 13. He's taking his commissioners away on a retreat to sketch out that speech, an approach we can say with near certainty that President Donald Trump won't be taking with the US State of the Union speech in January. And nearly every day, tucked slightly below the main headlines, has been the latest shot in the fight between the European Commission and the government of Poland over Poland's efforts to change how judges are appointed, their crackdowns on journalists, and their hardline refugee policy. So this week's episode is dedicated to looking at the state of human rights in Europe and how that's being approached by the various antagonists and protagonists in that discussion. We'll speak with Michael O'Flaherty, who heads the EU's Fundamental Rights Agency. And then joining me now is Jan Czinski. He's officially Politico's energy editor, but I like to think of him as our Poland whisperer. Jan himself is a dual Poland-Canada national and was for many years an economist correspondent in Warsaw. Welcome to the show, Jan. Uh, Thanks for having me. So let's get right into it. The Commission's efforts to moderate the Polish government's judicial reforms and their approach to journalists and media freedom, they appear to be falling flat. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, um, the the polls have, and they've they've been pretty explicit about it in in recent days. Uh, Ryszard Czarnecki, who's actually the the deputy president of the... uh, of the European Parliament a couple of days ago was saying that the uh, Commission doesn't have tanks that they can send to Warsaw, so we can basically ignore them. And that's a pretty broad conclusion that the current Polish government has made, is that the Commission can be unpleasant, they can sort of scream and yell from Brussels, but that there's they're not going to be able to actually pull the trigger on Article 7 of removing Poland's voting rights as, a, as an EU member, uh, that they're even, uh, the, the calculations is that they're even unlikely to mess too much with the structural funds that, that Poland depends on, and that Poland has enough, it realizes it doesn't have a lot of allies, but it has enough allies in Hungary and a few other countries which are cautious about a country being made an example of in the way that Poland might be made, that they feel they've got enough political cover that they can do pretty well what they want and and sort of brazen it out. And I suppose there's also maybe two other factors in there as well, where the EU really needs to keep its unity over Brexit. So it can't really afford to be pushing too far on Poland in some respects. And Poland's actually also an economic success. So if it was on its knees in the way Greece was, perhaps economically, you might be in a different political zone, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, Poland is an economic success and has been an enormous success for the last quarter century. It's one of Europe's best, or one of the world's actually, best performing economies over that period of time. Which doesn't mean that the EU doesn't have levers that it can use against uh, Poland, because unlike a country like Germany, Poland does depend on uh, the flow of structural funds. I mean, before Poland joined the EU, there were almost no highways were built in the country. They simply didn't have the financial resources to do that sort of thing. And so this enormous 
leap in, in modernization that anybody who travels now to Poland will notice is in large measure due to the to the flow of EU structural funds. So that is a possible choke point that the uh, that the EU could exercise against Poland. But again, the, the the calculation in Warsaw is that that won't happen. I don't know if that's an accurate calculation. And uh, you mentioned about the um, about the Brexit conundrum. I have a sense that Brexit is in a sense a done deal. The Brits are leaving, and now it's just doing the paperwork on their on their way out. And and so that's the dispute. Poland is not leaving. And Poland is rising as an issue of importance for the rest of the EU because it, it shows fundamental problems in the way that the EU is managed. And if you can actually have a, an EU where uh, some members are so intrinsically different in their approach to rule of law, to democracy, to a host of these areas, which are actually pretty key to the way the EU functions. And so that the debate in, in Brussels is, do we just give Poland a pass because it's a relatively large, important country and ignore all the stuff that's going on? Or do we actually have to stop this because other countries may follow suit and that this needs to, if we want to have a common community, we have to have common values. And if the Poles and to a slightly lesser extent, the Hungarians don't fit, then they need to be told that they don't fit and, and brought into line. And so I think that actually for the future of the EU, Poland is actually a bigger concern for Brussels than Brexit because the the Brits are gone. And in a way, you could make the argument that Poland is sort of slotting into the seat that was held by the Brits as the, the awkward squad that are coming in and willing to throw their weight around for a looser type of union. Uh, but I actually wanted to move on to chat a little bit now about who really matters in this fight. On the Commission side, the point man is Franz Timmermans. He's the former Dutch foreign minister who Jean-Claude Juncker put forward as his right-hand man with the title of first vice president. And, you know, I would put it out there, if we were just talking amongst ourselves in the office, we'd all work on the automatic assumption that it's Mr. Kaczynski is the one who matters in Poland. So not the Prime Minister, Beata Szydło, uh, not the President, Andrzej Duda, but the head of the ruling Law and Justice Party. What's your take on that sketch of the figures involved? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think Timmermans is is an interesting character because he actually has, which infuriates the government, the Polish government, he's actually got an emotional tie to Poland because his family remembers Polish troops coming through the Netherlands during World War II and liberating their town from the Germans. So he's got a personal emotional connection to Poland, which many other West Europeans don't have. And he emphasizes it quite frequently when he talks about Poland, that he's not an enemy of Poland, he's actually a huge ally. And that's why he's He's pushing this line. On the other side, I think that the assessment is correct, that Poland is very much ruled by Kaczynski, whose official political function is he's simply an MP. He's the head of the, the ruling Law and Justice Party. But his he built the party from scratch. He nominated all the people of importance. Szydło is the prime minister because Kaczynski decided that she would be the prime minister. Duda is the president because he... Kaczynski pulled him out of obscurity in the European Parliament and made him the party's candidate. So he dominates the ruling party to such an extent that the direction that the country is taking with regards to the EU or broadly foreign policy is sort of percolated through 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 Kaczynski. And he's not just a party hack sitting in a back room. Like He actually used to do this job, so he knows how to pull those levers and, and get he's what been, he wants. He's been the prime minister. He was the prime minister from uh, 2005 to 2007. 
which was another period where there was enormous conflict and friction between Brussels and, and a very new Poland as a new member state, between Berlin and Warsaw, and this sort of things that we're seeing now, except now it's on a much larger scale because the government has a larger majority and, is, and uh, foreseeably is going to be in power through the, the full, term, through full, full parliamentary term. Now, the other name we haven't mentioned here that we can't escape from is European Council President Donald Tusk, who was, until 2014, also Poland's Prime Minister. So where is he working at the moment? And do you think he's in the running to get his old job back or to to go for the presidency in 2020? He's detested, personally detested by Kaczynski for a host of reasons. The main one is that Kaczynski blames him to some extent for the 2010 air disaster in which a whole host of Polish officials died in a very tragic air accident in uh, over Smolensk, Russia, including uh, Kaczynski's twin brother, Lech Kaczynski, who was Poland's president at the time. There's a host of conspiracy theories, some completely absurd in Poland as to what happened around this crash. But the general view among law and justice, and particularly among Kaczynski, is that Tusk played some role in that disaster and that he is in some way to blame. So is that a bit like the crooked Hillary Clinton label, where you just kind of keep throwing mud to sort of create an impression, even if there's like a little bit of a grain of truth, but not necessarily a lot of evidence for the picture that's been painted? There's actually no evidence at all. But it's much more personal than crooked Hillary Clinton, because this is Yaroslav Kaczynski's beloved identical twin brother. And these two people were on the phone multiple times a day throughout their lives. And so he's, uh, he's sort of half a person, and he, in some sense, blames Tusk. So there's a very deep personal animosity. There's a political animosity. Tusk, while he was in charge of the civic platform, the, the, the centrist party that he ran, regularly beat Kaczynski in every election for the space of eight, over the space of eight years. And Kaczynski only managed to take power when Tusk had left for Brussels to take over the council. So there's a political and a personal animosity there. Tusk sees that. He tries not to get too involved in national politics. Their prosecutors are chasing around after him, so he goes from time to time. He's sort of called into Warsaw to testify in various issues. He does try to moderate the views of some Western Europeans towards Central Europe in general, that these countries are full member states and have a future in, in a more tightly integrated EU. But you do sense with him a growing frustration in what the Polish government is doing and the direction that, that Poland is taking and sort of a worry, is this going to lead to a poll exit? And at some point that the Polish government is going to become so antagonistical towards Brussels that it will end up changing public opinion, which is now very pro-EU, and lead to a departure of Poland from the EU. This is sounding positively Shakespearean in the way it's unfolding. It sounds like we're in about Act 3 of that play. We all know there's usually four or five acts when it comes to Shakespeare. So a quick last question before we move on to Michael O'Flaherty, who is going to talk to us about the broader human rights situation in Europe. Where do you think this dispute is going to go next? Are there things before the so-called nuclear option, or are we just going to go around in circles now until we have to press that button? I have a sense that, that, the, uh, that the EU is treating this more and more seriously and that the Poles, Warsaw is miscalculating. You listened to uh, Angela Merkel a couple of days ago talking about rule of law and democracy in Poland. President Macron in France is, is doing the same, that there's a sense that this is an issue that must be dealt with. Watch out, Warsaw. Thanks for joining us, Jan Chinsky. And now we're going to turn to Michael O'Flaherty from the EU Fundamental Rights Agency. 
I spoke to Michael at the European Outback Forum up in the Tyrolean Mountains in Austria. It's a gathering of political and academic folk that takes place throughout August each year. You'll hear a little bit of background noise, so please bear with it. We were talking in a cafeteria up in the mountains. Michael O'Flaherty, you run the Fundamental Rights Agency of the European Union. Welcome to EU Confidential. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, I wanted to chat to you today about a few issues, and first amongst them is this difficulty that human rights defenders and advocates and people who are in charge of upholding our laws when it comes to fundamental rights are having these days in communicating what it is that they do, why it's important to defend those existing institutions and, and regulations. And you recently put out a report about how people interested in the topic can actually be successful. And I hear that you did that by going out and listening rather than lecturing. Do you want to tell us a bit more about how that report came into being and, and what you really want others to learn from it? Sure. Um, we have, and it's been growing over the last few years, we have a real problem in getting our messages across. We're generating hard, solid evidence, we're doing good legal analysis, we're providing policymakers with the advice that we think will make a difference for the better, but it's not always being listened to, it's not always being understood, and that is in part our problem. We've been reflecting very deeply on how we can sell the product better, how we can convince people that it matters, it makes a difference. It's the policymakers, but it's also the general population, it's the people on the street. Street. It's not a given anymore that they're passionate about human rights uh, or that they even recognise that human rights is about themselves. And so we have to, we have to in a way, start from scratch again. And uh, to help us do that, we brought together a bunch of different kind of experts, the not the usual suspect kind of experts at our office in Vienna, cognitive scientists, uh, philosophers of knowledge, media people, uh, ad agency uh, professionals, to tell us how you effectively deliver a message in 2017. I think the results were really interesting. We now have to actually use them and turn them into action. Well, it's how good we to work. hear that experts actually have a role to play in our society. They haven't been uh, so popular in the last year or so in political debate. This is certainly true, but uh, you know, one of the things we learned, and I'm not going to concede any ground to people who say there's no room for experts, but you have to be careful and creatively and imaginatively bring the right experts into the room to answer the right question. We just brought together a bundle of ideas from different worlds, all of which can play together to make a difference. A avoiding language that nobody understands or is a turn-off. Convincing people out there on the street that human rights is not just about the other somewhere distant, but it's about themselves. Talk about the situation of old people in nursing homes as an issue of human rights. Then human rights wakes up for somebody who has a parent or a relative in a nursing home using communication techniques that we have um, kind of disdained for too long, using images, using popular language, engaging with people's values and all of their values, mm. uh, and not just speaking within one of those famous liberal bubbles that we hear so much mm -hmm. about. How do you engage people's empathy? And um, w w one of the very important vehicles for that that has been neglected in the human rights world is working more closely with arts practitioners, uh, working with makers of music, of the plastic arts, of, of literature, to see how we can collaborate in a respectful way that doesn't compromise each other's distinct roles to deliver on what we each consider important. And do you think that somewhere along the line, because people in this sort of field, you know, they're convinced that they're right. That's one of the reasons why they're passionate about the issue. They're there. That sometimes that clouds their ability yeah. to yeah. think outside of themselves and to 
you know, not take things for granted, but put That's themselves right. in the shoes of those other people that only come across this for five minutes a day or five minutes a year. That's right. And um, we have to do a much better job of making the business case for what we're claiming. We can't just say do it because it's right or because it's the law. That's just not going to work. We have to show that you'll get a better outcome. Take the Burkini issue of, of last summer. If we could have framed that as an issue of rights and how if we had applied a human rights approach to policing those beaches we would much reduce the risk of radicalization, of anger and of upset in certain communities. In other words we'd have better security. But we need to systematically make those arguments for our human rights claims and uh, I think that's been too much neglected by too many parts of the human rights community going back uh, over the years. Well, that's a pretty neat segue into the other areas I wanted to touch on because there's a lot of data backing the other issues that I thought were of concern and I wanted to, to check in on what the, the Fundamental Rights Agency is doing on these topics. And one of those is hate crime, yeah. where whatever the legitimate grievances that people have had about economic security, about the way that globalization has been managed. I think that the tone of the debate that we've seen in a lot of politics in the last 18 months, it's certainly given encouragement, if nothing else, to people who have a violent answer or an angry answer to the concerns that they've had. And we've seen the numbers for hate crime rising. I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit how you see that from your perspective when you've got this helicopter view of all of the, the countries and how linked do you think that is to these populist debates or other forces like Brexit and did that really trigger some kind of uptick in these violent incidents? Well, look, the first thing to say about patterns of hate speech and hate crime is that it is extremely serious and it's frankly getting worse. The danger is if you look at it in just this country or that country and you, you don't take that helicopter view, you don't have a sense of the extent to which this is a huge challenge right across the European Union and that's the other thing. Nobody's exempt, no country is exempt. You can't put your finger and say it's that country that's the problem. And it's not an East versus West thing either. We're following it very closely in the context of the migration situation. We do a monthly public report on the migrant issues across 15 most affected EU member states. Every month, it's a public report, it's online, every month we have a section on hate crime and hate speech and every month the stories and the figures are really shocking. I'm really quite taken aback by the number of incidences in villages in this country or that country. So where is it coming from? I think it's in part coming from a failure of political leadership in many parts of European society, either saying things that fuel people to think it's okay, that you'll get away with it, to uh, not adequately chasing the crimes, prosecuting them and labelling them for what they are, criminal acts. So it's, um, there's a heck of a lot more needed from our leadership and from our security forces in many parts of the European Union. And talking about how you enforce against hate crime or make examples of the people who are caught doing it, that strangely is one example where Brexit comes into these discussions because I understand that the UK is actually one of the best countries yeah. at actually acknowledging that hate crime exists as a yeah. category of, of wrong and doing something about it. And once you take the UK out of the sort of networks that you operate in and so on, that must have some kind of effect on your ability to, to get the job done or to raise awareness at least in, yeah. in all of the other EU countries. Yeah, when I'm asked what I think of Brexit, my first answer always and uh, truthfully is the extent to which we will lose 
by the absence of the United Kingdom. Time and time again, it either gets it right or it's going in the right direction in terms of the bricks and mortar of protecting human rights. I'm talking about the unsexy business of working out what a computer program should look like to record hate crime uh, to ensure that it's responded to by police forces. I'm by no means, by the way, saying that it's a perfect state that's leaving, but it has worked hard on the drilling down of human rights commitments into good governance in a way which is quite exceptional we're going to be the poorer because we're not going to have automatically fed into our work, into our harvesting of good practice and good experience at those stories from the United Kingdom. I hope we'll still be able to draw on them, but it won't have that automatic quality that's there now. A little bit of an operational question. You're based in Vienna, in yeah, Austria. Yeah. How does that work? How do you feel as a part of the Viennese community? What's the reception the EU receives, not just your agency, but you know, you are kind of outside of the EU bubble to yeah, a certain extent yeah, and yeah. you can give us a different view compared to people who sit in Brussels. Sure. Um, I, I think um, being outside the Brussels bubble uh, does allow us to focus and concentrate and not be distracted by the day-to-day -day dramas in the way I think that would be inevitable if, if we were there. It describes itself not inaccurately as a city of human rights. It hosted the World Conference on Human Rights, out of which emerged such important things as a UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. So Vienna has made a difference, and uh, we, I think we still can draw energy from that. We bring every two years, we bring almost a thousand people together in Vienna to discuss the biggest human and fundamental rights challenges facing Europe. It's a good venue for that, uh, a good energy. We probably would like to be more engaged at the level of Austria itself. It's important. Uh, we have to be where we are and give something meaningful back to that society. And that's, a, that's an area we're investing some, some effort in at the present time. And a lot of people won't know exactly how EU agencies are structured, how yeah. tied you are to the Commission yeah. and so on. How are you set up? Do you have freedom to set your own internal policies and so on? How do you guard an independence from those more political office holders in Brussels? Well, we are an EU agency, but we're the only agency, and I, as far as I know, we're the only agency that has uh, its independence explicitly stated in its founding regulation. And so uh, that was a very wise move by the um, architects of the agency. It means that we stand outside the system, but engaging with it constantly. We can give an alternative viewpoint. We're only as good as the quality of our advice, because we're not part of the executive decision-making. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that's probably the best location to put a body with a human rights mandate such as ours. There's obviously been debates around the so-called nuclear option for defending human rights within the EU system. So that would be the Commission and national governments debating whether to effectively suspend some of the rights of Poland and Hungary are the two cases where it's come up. Is that something where you write reports on those issues? Have you ever given advice on those issues? Or is that something that you've chosen to stay out of because it is so deeply political? No, we don't stay out at all. We're asked to provide technical advice, including on the range of possible models for new compliance tools uh, that might be developed in the EU. You use the word nuclear option. I found myself thinking in response that we're very good at identifying the full range of uh, non-nuclear options and weaponry that's still there and underused. And by the way, I shouldn't be using the, the language of weapons for human rights, mm -hmm. but we're investing a lot of effort at the moment in gathering together all of the findings of all of the international oversight bodies that mm -hmm. are relevant with regard to EU member states, mm -hmm. uh, so that this impressive amount of material can be better put to use within the EU. And that's an example of, let's say, 
looking more at the uh, conventional weapons and getting better value out of them uh, side by side with any discussions of or before any discussion of a nuclear uh, weapon. No, that's really interesting. Uh, the Hungarian government is the one I'm familiar with. The way where it's constructed many of those new laws that were seen as challenging the rule of law, media freedom and so on. And they actually drew upon a lot of different Western examples. They cherry-picked from different systems in the West, constructed what they perceived was a system that suited Hungary better, and most people have said that's quite illiberal the way they've chosen to do it. But nevertheless, they drew upon the body of knowledge from other countries for the end they wanted to achieve. The problem is it's not adequately harvested and it's not available on the table for policymakers when they need it. And, and so this is a concentration of ours with the parliament and with the other institutions at the mm. present time. And in some of that it's just buried in PDF documents and paper files around and in, Europe or, and you can't oh, search for it online? Yeah, but it's also in, in opaque, incomprehensible language. Take the findings of the United Nations oversight bodies, which are as relevant, the ones with regard to Europe, the findings. They're as relevant as the findings of any European body. They're difficult to access and they're difficult to understand once you access them. So we need to draw attention and help people read them, interpret them, understand them. Well, that's a very worthy cause. I'm glad that you're taking it up. And thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you for having me. So now it's time for a big welcome back to our EU Confidential podcast panel, back from summer. Hello, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena Rabarus. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Alva. So our philosophy here at EU Confidential is why have one EU WTF moment when you can have two or even three? <laughs> so let's dive right into it with Emmanuel Macron's ginormous makeup budget. A little bit of background in case you missed this over the summer. It's been revealed that Emmanuel Macron spent more than 26,000 euros on makeup and hair in just the first three months in office. Why don't we dive right in? What is your reaction to that? takes money to look that good. I think many ladies will realize that. It doesn't really do him any favors in the kind of, you know, he's coming off as being a bit into his looks. This whole thing about him being a Jupiterian president. What does Jupiterian like, even mean? I don't know, like chiseled from stone. It is a huge makeup bill, I think, for, for most people. It's a bit like, I don't know. For most people? Sal Have you ever met anyone no, who like spent that much on makeup? No, but like a president. Yes. But like, I think this one's like akin to what Celine Dion must spend on her makeup in Vegas. But it was emergency makeup, wasn't it? That was he was emergency saying it was, makeup. It was okay, urgent. So, Lena, let's do a reality it. check here. When you need an emergency <laughs> blowout on your hair, from a scale of zero oh, to 26,000 euros, how much do you spend? Ryan, let's not talk about my hair. <laughs> Please. But for Macron, I think the French people have elected him to rejuvenate the French politics, to bring like a sort of a fresh look, a fresh um, a start. Uh, they have a lot of hope. And because he's, he's young. Yet, yeah. unfortunately, he just acted like the former President Hollande and the former President Sarkozy. Let's not forget the story about uh, President Hollande. Before he, he finished his presidential uh, presidency, it was a bill of 30,000 euros. I'm glad you brought that up. So Macron uh, exactly. is not even the leader exactly. in the French presidential and spending. And let's not forget, President Sarkozy as well, he had a full-time hairdresser as part of his team at the Elysee. And this lady was covering 8,000 euros per month. So unfortunately, he has such a beautiful face. We must all admit that. Even um, Merkel, I mean, she always smiles, a special smile when she sees him. Well, here's another thought I want to throw in. 
my fiance says that at least with Emmanuel Macron, you're getting something for your money. With Alonde, you're spending all that money, you're not getting anything back exactly, for it. Exactly. I don't think we can let that pass. Another, uh, like, our thumbs up of the. Yeah, early week, on thumbs up. Yeah, it must be that Ryan is now engaged to Woo! Zachary Bishop. Woo! Yeah, he got congratulations. Do you see what I did there? Do you like how I slipped that in? Engaged on the top of Machu Picchu. Indeed, the very top of Machu Picchu, not this kind of amateur hour ruins level of Machu Picchu, but the very top, a full 1,500 metres higher up. Congratulations. Yeah, it takes to go all the way on the top to make it. And the only way is down now, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's move on to another Emmanuel Macron moment. A lot of people were kind of giving a lot of coverage and seemed to be shocked that he would actually bother to turn up in Eastern Europe. So I don't know if this is a, a WTF moment, but... I was thinking, why do we even care that a leader is going to Eastern Europe? Isn't this something they should be doing as a matter of course as a European leader? Why should it be shocking or why should you be congratulated to bother to turn up in an Austria, in a Prague, in a Bucharest? Well, I think it shows that he was very serious about, you know, being the French president who wants to reform the EU. And he went there with some specific goals in mind. And one of them was the Posted Worker Directive, which if listeners don't know what that is, it's basically that European companies can post people abroad for two years, but they can still kind of pay them at a rate which in Eastern Europe would be much lower. The other thing is it was very obvious that he didn't meet with some people in the region Like Hungary and Poland. Yes, who are seen as kind of troublemakers. And yeah, I think meeting with almost all of the Visgard group, bar them, uh, was a very obvious, you know, I went on a ticket that I was going to reform the EU and I am going to reach out to the actors that are also important. It's not just, you know, Germany, France that make decisions in the EU. And I think it's a clear recognition of that. So for me, I thought... It's a clever move from him to go so early and to show respect to them. And then also a little bit of a snub to those kind of misbehaving countries. Now, speaking of reaching out and having specific goals in mind, I think that brings us to the rather extraordinary Brexit press conference (laughs) that took place in Brussels on Monday where the allegation from the EU side was that Britain has not really reached out and hasn't really stated any specific goals about what it wants from the Brexit negotiations. Uh, So I'm putting that out there as a WTF to see two people who basically really need to get down to business very soon, standing next to each other, being really snippy, frankly. It was quite an extraordinary moment to watch them really just be in parallel universes at that press point. What was the reaction each of you had? Lena? The level of um, the verbal and the tone was really, really um, astonishing. It's shocking. But yet again, he's extremely smart for using all sorts of tools in communication to prepare the public opinion in Europe. Alva, is David Davis just got this very sophisticated act or actually is it what it seems that he's blustering and doesn't really know what he's doing? Yeah, so I think he kind of like famously said, you know, that the the position papers, I'm really relying on those saying like, you know, we're serious, these were serious positions. And then the response from the EU side was, this is all very nice, but are these real? Or, you know, we're not getting anywhere, even in light of these kind of what I suppose the UK think are detailed position papers. But a lot of them have already been kind of criticised very heavily particularly the one on the customs union and the one on Northern Ireland. So I think that 
they're obviously not getting on well, which doesn't bode well for the the, the negotiations. Uh, and the way that they're kind of using the media, I think the UK are on the defensive very much. They're, they're trying to say, we're super serious about this. But you know, the referendum that they had was a yes or no. What's coming out now is very clear that I don't, I, yeah, they really hadn't thought it all out. If they had, it would be, I think, quite different. And also the political situation is, is quite difficult, as we know. So I think it will continue like this. You know, the EU pointing the finger and saying, you know, you're the ones who did this and you didn't know what was going to happen. And mm-hmm. we're waiting for something valid because you're leaving and it's up to you to present something that we can accept. Yeah. Yep. For me, the Japanese government really captured it where they've gone to Theresa May and said, you've got to get rid of this sense of crisis around Brexit. And I was reaching for some other kind of analogy and I was thinking, okay, let's imagine you're in a Donald Trump apartment complex. Let's let's call it a Trump apartment complex. And you don't like the apartment you're living in. You know, you don't want to move too far. You want to move to another apartment in the complex. So if you're going to do that, you don't really negotiate the terms of the next rental contract until you've agreed if there's a penalty for breaking the existing contract or you do the inspection on the apartment that you're in. Why would Mr. Trump and his management company let you just shift to that other apartment until you've sorted out the previous one? That said, I think the EU is being slightly manipulative. They Mm. could have structured their mandate and their instructions to Barnier in a different way. It's obviously hard to get to where they've got to, but they could have done it differently. And now that they're there, they're, you know, they're just really throwing everything back at the UK and just saying, we cannot change, we cannot change. Of course, Ryan, but it's 700 agreements. The UK has to negotiate and prepare 700 agreements. This is a huge number. It's not something uh, easy. And the EU will not be going after a country that decides to leave and like, hey, listen, we're going to help you to negotiate afterwards. it, It doesn't make sense. Well, I think that wraps up a bumper season of EU WTF to get us back in the groove for the EU bubble now that the summer break is over. Now it's time to look at the next Dear Politico request. And now it's time to welcome back our Dear Politico advice section after a break over the summer. We've got yet another problem from an assistant at the European Parliament. And the assistant writes to us, quote, This is the third MEP I work for as an assistant, and one of the most challenging. He keeps asking me to be extra friendly with other MEPs and assistants, hinting that I should be open-minded and that I am sexy, and I should use this to help us get a better deal in compromise negotiations. He keeps asking me to do this, and I do it, and he gets what he wants. He gets his deals. I'm sick of it. I don't want to quit. My career is important to me. It is hard to go back, though, and say no to him. End quote. Well, Alva, what's your reaction? Oh, another really, frankly, depressing Dear Politico. I think another kind of anecdotal story that really shows that sexual harassment is rife in the European Parliament, directly from MEPs to their assistants. I mean, my advice to you would be to probably say that that's inappropriate, first of all. I mean, draw the line. Draw the line in the sand and say no. It doesn't seem like you've said no to him yet. And just say no. And also, I really doubt whether or not this is getting you the deal. Let's define it. Let's read between the lines. I'm reading open-minded. You know, It sounds like the sort of language that would come out of a club med holiday, but it seems to mean sexual favours 
possibly over some drinks on a Thursday night, that sort of thing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm I'm reading from it. Is it a simple thing of you going and flirting? Uh, probably not. I mean, is that how people make deals? I think you could be taken advantage of or are being taken advantage of in these situations as well. So what I would do is draw the line and say, no, you're not doing it. But also if he insists on it, how is he ever going to know you're doing it or not? Indeed. Lena, is there a difference between having a friendly drink with somebody and what seems to be indicated in this advice request? Of course there's a big difference. I mean, and if this uh, MEP all the time is asking um, his, his assistant to go and, and flirt and uh, try to use her beauty and her, her looks in order to uh, influence a decision, which unfortunately she doesn't know how much is uh, being impactful and influential by such behaviors. I can't have any advice except like say no. That's the next layer. Once you say no, is the second step to get out of the office or is the second step to work with other members of the team to find a different way to deliver these legislative outcomes? I mean, if this happened to me, I would feel so uncomfortable that I wouldn't be able to work with this person anymore. This has never happened to me. And maybe it is that you're from the same nationality and that you have, because it seems like you have also done this for him. But what I would say to you is your reputation is also on the line. If you continue to to give in to him and go around kind of flirting and that behavior from other cultures is considered inappropriate. So if you go around doing that, you know, you'll get a reputation in the parliament. So what I would say is stop doing it tell him no and leave because as Lena said you've obviously proven yourself with other MEPs I don't think it's a stretch to say that you would probably get another job now how far you've gone in trying to make these deals is another question Uh, maybe you have to kind of look at that and and why you, you did this for him if anybody asked me to do anything like this ever my immediate response would be no and I think you need to kind of train yourself to know where your limits are and say if I don't feel comfortable doing something no you know that it is wrong and I, I, I can sense from what Ryan read in the email um, is that you really want to change your situation. So I wish you all the best. I think there's three votes for that. If you have a problem that you want the EU Confidential team to address, please send it through to playbook at politico.eu and we'll of course keep your situation, the details of it, confidential and just share enough to allow you to have some food for thought. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back again next week. Don't forget to forward this podcast to any friends and colleagues who might enjoy it. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So a big thank you to the team who's made this episode of EU Confidential possible. Andrew Gray, Cynthia Krut, and Antonio Fernandez.